You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. So we've been, uh, we're kind of wrapping up today on this series of three conversations we've been having on pro-life questions. And um, I'm going to play some clips later from kind of some man-on-the-street interviews to try to help give you an idea of some ways that our culture is thinking through these, these questions. Because as you have people in your Oikos, maybe your teenage children or your grandchildren, you know, your neighbors, this is going to be the way that they think. And that's kind of what I want to help you be able to think through today in how our culture has influenced our thinking. And, and even my own thinking, I was finding myself challenged a little bit this week as I was preparing this lesson. So just to restate a couple of uh, very uh, critical points that we've been making is that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth, even the unborn. And we've been making the second comment that women's rights, if we really want to talk about women's rights, it starts in the womb, right? The gender equality starts in the womb. And if we're going to be, you know, pretty consistent about it, so we've been trying to advocate what I, I, I think I'm, I call like kind of the third way. You know, it's not only conservatives or only liberals. It's what is the distinctively Christian way of thinking about some of these controversial things in our culture. And uh, we noted last week that conservatives tend to focus mostly on the unborn, whereas liberal advocates tend to focus a lot on the woman. And I'm saying both of these are important. We need to have a holistic approach and make a third way, if you will, that really values uh, the, the life and the dignity of both the mother and the father and the baby, everybody involved. Um, last week, we talked about our first step when we're in a conversation with somebody about pro-life issues is to ignore distractions, right? There's, we watched the clip from The View last week, and there were... Remember, we had like 25 different topics up here, 25 different potential rabbit trails that we could go down. But what is the one question that we, we want to focus on is, is the unborn a human? That is really the only question that matters. And if you walk away from this and that's the only thing that you remember, that's a good thing, is that... When there's all of these distractions, just ask the question is, is the unborn a human? And we wrapped up last week, we're talking about some kind of scientific um, observations to help support our answer for the unborn being a human. And today we're gonna focus more on logic or philosophy. And I've left this for the end because it's not that it's the least important, but that I wanted to kind of lay some very important groundwork first, especially about kind of the personal component. So with all of that in place, we're going to begin to look at some arguments and making the case from philosophy. And, and here again, I'm going to give my plug for uh, if you've never taken a logic class or, or anything, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to um, discipline your mind uh, to think. Do you, you know that in, in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. That word there for word is logos in Greek. Logos. 
What word do you think we get from that? Logic. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. And there is a very ancient Christian idea that, that, that Jesus is like almost like a reflection of the mind of God. And so when we learn logic, uh, we're, we're learning how to think carefully. And when we think carefully, we are actually reflecting the mind of God because the laws of logic are something that exist independent of us. It's a whole fun realm we could explore there. But the, you know, the, the laws of logic are not dependent. They're not human dependent. They're like the laws of morality, the laws of logic, the laws of mathematics. You ever notice that like a Hindu, uh, a Buddhist, and a Christian all solve the same mathematical problems the same way, right? Because math is not worldview dependent, right? It's something that exists outside of us. You ever contemplated numbers? Like where do numbers exist? Numbers don't, aren't a physical reality. They exist in some non-physical part of the universe. You ever thought about that? The, the philosophy of numbers, it's kind of an interesting thing. And the, the, um, the, the, the laws of, of science, the laws of gravity, are, are something that is non-physical. It's a physical expression, but it's non-physical. And it's, it's part of what philosophers call the, the, the invisible furniture of the universe. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's something that's real, but it's not something that we see. And, and I would say that the laws of logic are a lot like numbers. In fact, if you take a class in deductive logic, you're, it's a lot like math. If you've ever taken a deductive logic class, it's, these are the propositions, these are the, these are the ideas, and here's the conclusion that follows. Okay? So when you take logic, there's a sense in which you are learning the laws of thought and how the, the universe ought to operate in thought. And there's a very interesting word that John picks there. He says, in the beginning was the word. In the, and so there's a sense in which I think the laws of logic and learning logic is a way of thinking God's thoughts after him. And when I was bipolar and I had very disordered thinking and undisciplined thoughts, taking a logic class was like amazing for me because there was a structure of thinking that could help me. It helped me so much because then I would try to like figure out, all right, where's the flaw in how I'm thinking about this? And am I really reflecting the mind of God when I think about this? So logic is like something that is a lot of fun. I'm really passionate about, and I always have these little side comments about this, but this is why. That's probably like way more information than you ever cared about knowing. Total nerdsville, but um, that's okay. So, um, so there are four key differences between the unborn and the born. And um, there, when I talk about these differences, these are differences that are often cited in casual conversation. Now, the purpose of this is not to encourage us in something in our spirit to begin to go around getting in arguments. The, the idea of this conversation is just for us to have some clarity so when we find ourselves in a conversation, we can kind of have some things to think about and to swim to. And um, I, I'm skeptical that any of these four differences are relevant to justify the killing of the unborn on demand. I'm not going to re-rehearse all the things we talked about last week about potential exceptions and 
all of that, but just this idea of abortion on demand. I think the bottom line for us as Christians is the only thing that makes us value is our, our it, that makes us valuable is our intrinsic value. We call this in the Declaration of Independence our inalienable rights. The whole concept of humans having inalienable rights is directly tied to the image of God. It is directly tied to a biblical concept of humanity. So our intrinsic value, in other words, being a human being is fundamentally different than being a dandelion. Are you with me? Yeah. That there's a fundamental difference between being a human being and being a dog. We love dogs. Some of us love dogs. Uh, but there, there is intrinsic value in being a human being because we are created in the image of God. That's what makes us different than apes, dandelions, and dogs. Right? So this is what gives us our value. All right, now we're going to watch a clip by Scott Klusendorf. He's a Christian ethicist, and his specialty is in questions about pro-life issues. That's kind of what he's made his, carved out his, his niche. So I'm summarizing what he's going to say in the following slides on your sheet. So if you want to get those details, because he's going to talk a little fast, you can get all of those details in the, in the boxes that are, that are there. Okay? Hi, I'm Scott Klusendorf. I'm president of Life Training Institute. If you were asked to develop a pro-life argument that could be communicated in two minutes or less, could you do it? Could you make a case that a secular person would accept a person who doesn't want religious arguments for the pro-life view? I'm going to show you how to do that. The first thing you want to do is point out that this debate is not about choice, it's not about privacy, it's about one question, what is the unborn? I mean, think about it. Would anybody you know argue we can kill two-year-olds in the name of trusting women? No, they only argue that way because they think the unborn aren't human. So let's start with that first question. What is the unborn? You use science to demonstrate that the unborn are distinct living and whole human beings. Every embryology textbook in the world indicates that's true. You didn't come from an embryo, you once were an embryo. But you've also got to do philosophy because science can't tell us how to treat the unborn. We need philosophy to tell us how to do that. Philosophically, there's only four differences between that embryo you once were and the adult you are today, and not one of them justifies killing you at that earlier stage of development. As Stephen Schwartz points out, there's a difference of size, a difference of level of development, a difference of environment, meaning where you're located, and a difference of degree of dependency. Think of the acronym SLED and you'll remember these four differences. Size, you were smaller as an embryo, but large people don't have a greater right to life than small people. Your level of development was less as an embryo, but since when does that matter? Two-year-old girls are less developed than 14-year-old girls. We don't think the two-year-old has less of a right to life. What about your environment, where you're located? You were in the womb, now you're out. But how does where you are determine what you are? When you rolled over in bed last night, you changed location, but you didn't stop being you. And finally, degree of dependency. While it's true you depended on your mother for survival when you were young, since when does that mean we can kill you? Conjoined twins depend on each other's bodily systems. We don't think they forfeit their right to life. 
size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. Think SLED. Those are the only four differences between that embryo you once were and the adult you are today, and not one of those is a good reason for saying you could be killed then, but not now. That's how you do it. Use science to show the unborn are human. Use philosophy to show there's no relevant difference between what we were in the womb and what we are today that would justify killing us. So the address is there, and if you want to check out more of Scott Klusendorf's videos, he's got a ton of them on YouTube. I just picked one that was really kind of short and pithy. So for the sake of our time, yeah. So the sled, the size, embryos are smaller than a newborn. But the question is, is why is that relevant? How does that determine whether or not someone is truly human? Is the size. Do we really want to say that large people are more human, are more human than small people? I hope not. <laughs> I've got problems, right? Is it size? Men are generally larger than women, but that doesn't mean that they deserve more rights. Size doesn't equal value. Are, are we clear about that? Yeah, so then another possible objection is the level of development, right? Yes, embryos are fetuses and are less developed than the adults that they'll become one day. But older children have, do, should older children then have more rights than younger children? Should a 14-year-old have more rights than a 2-year-old? More, he's more developed. What about a 40-year-old more than a 2-year-old? A 40-year-old is more developed than a 2-year-old. I'm not sure that that is a reason to justify killing the unborn if they're human. Self-awareness is part of this development issue. Some people will say, well, self-awareness is what makes someone human. Well, if that's true, then do newborns qualify as, as human beings? Because newborns are not very self-aware. They're fairly narcissistic, actually. They have a lot of needs. They're very dependent. If you leave a, a newborn to fend for itself, it's, it's not going to last very long, right? It's very dependent. So we, I don't know if dependency it, or self-awareness is necessarily a criteria for humanity. Environment. I, like, I know this messes up his beautiful acronym, but I like to, to, to think of this as location. Is where you are, does that have a bearing on your humanity, on who you are? Does your location? That's a, that's a big question. Um, does your value change because you cross the street or you roll over in bed is the, is the example he used. If not, then how can a journey of eight inches down to the birth canal suddenly change your essential nature from being non-human to human? How does that change who you are, is your location, where you are? Okay, if the unborn are not already human, merely changing their location <clears throat> doesn't seem to me can make them suddenly more valuable just because they've changed locations. Because they're still fairly dependent. And dependency. If viability makes us human, then all those who depend on insulin or a kidney medication are not, may not be as valuable as others, but we don't say that we can kill them. We don't say that the mentally handicapped don't deserve life just because they're dependent or they have greater levels of dependency. Rather, what the Christian, that the historic Christian position has always been that our value is intrinsic to our nature. 
and what it means to be a human being. Do you see the difference when you get these sort of functional definitions of what it means to be a human versus intrinsic value? These are two very different ideas. And I, I noticed in myself this week, like, wow, I think I've even been influenced by this in some pretty subtle ways myself, you know, of this, this type of, of thinking Can about you the human. Yeah. You sure. Yeah, it's so that something has value simply because it exists. That human beings have value because they exist. They, they don't get their value from something external to them or their function or what they do. They, they are valuable because they are human beings who have been created in the image of God. This is what we mean in the, the Declaration of Independence by saying inalienable rights. They get them from their creator. They don't get rights or their humanity from the government. Something's not human because the government pronounces it human. Now, the government might pronounce something human, and it might agree with our worldview. But this is why I'm slowly in the series trying to separate our worldview as Christians from our worldview as Americans and our government and what our government is up to. Because sometimes those things go together and sometimes they don't. And we get our value from the creator, not the government. The Declaration of Independence says our inalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In the wording of that, there's great, I think, agreement with the Judeo-Christian worldview about our intrinsic value and worth, our intrinsic value. But we, our current reality of where we are is that the government gives us rights. That's not a distinctly Christian point of view. Now, there might be some ways that, again, the government can agree with a Christian point of view. Like, for example, we're having this cultural conversation right now about rape culture. The rape culture is not okay. And I, I've made the case last fall that because women have value, an equal value, yeah, that's a Christian idea. And that's something that I think our culture is wrestling with right now. But it's not, it's not wrong because the government says it might be wrong or it's prosecutable. It's that it's wrong because we as Christians believe it's wrong because women and men are created in the image of God. Is this, are, are you with me? Is this making sense? So you, when we think about the question of is the unborn human, we are making a very um, interesting assertion that goes against our, what our culture is saying. Because our culture tells us that the rights of the unborn come from the government. And the government decides who's valuable. Even sometimes, and how valuable, and how many, how many resources we're going to put toward preserving that life. So th I'm just pointing these things out so that you can be sharpened when you hear these things in the news. And you hear your kids talk about it, and your grandkids. And you can ask them a question. Well. You know, <clears throat> what is the unborn? I, what I want you to see is the bigger issue here is why do we value life? Is that that is part of our worldview? But we got to work that out. We got to ask some hard questions about how does that show up in the real world? Like with things like health care and rationing and caps and, and end of life care. But these are all questions that are related to the larger question for us 
as a Christian culture is how do we care for the sick? And you know, what is our unique calling as Christians beyond the politics, right? Yeah, My Susanna. My two concerns is when it comes to healthcare, for instance, is the life of the rich more valuable if you can afford insurance? Yes. And being that I'm low, very low. Right. My other issue when it comes to pro-life issues, I, I find it so interesting if you want a child and the child's a preemie, will go to every extent to keep that kid alive. But they're trying to, you know, want to have late-term abortions. I don't get it. It's the same kid. Yeah. It's, and this is an issue of location and a, a, an issue of the mother's, the, the mother's wanting it. Right. If the child is wanted, then we're going to take every medical step necessary. If, they're, if the child is not wanted, then it, abortion on demand is, is morally okay. And that seems to be kind of how our morality is unfolding in our broader culture. So um, here's a few ideas for conversations is, is killing a fetus morally different than killing a newborn? I mean, that's always an interesting question for people to reflect on. We're going to watch a video in a minute where they ask that question. How does a change of location from inside the womb to outside the womb change the essential nature of the unborn? How does the, how does the unborn all of a sudden go from not valuable to valuable just because it went down the birth canal? Or was, in my case, had a C-section and cut the baby right out. Should those with a low IQ be declared non-persons? Like, what's the threshold of that? Um, I think that's a, an interesting question because there's, uh, there's been the news, um, Iceland has virtually eliminated Down syndrome babies uh, through abortion because they're, they're saying these are people, this is a group of people that deserve not to live because they're gonna have a lower quality of life. And s s are they human persons? Now, a, a, a Christian point of view would say, of course they're human persons. We value them. So these are, these are things that are happening in our culture that have a direct connection to our worldview as Christians. So we wanna be informed and be a stand for, for life. Okay, then our third step in our kind of our our approach is uh, don't be a jerk. Like, <laughs> you know, I always say this in class, like, don't be a jerk. Like, your goal in any conversation where you disagree with somebody is to win another conversation. You want to keep going with them. You, you don't want to destroy the relationship because you, because you disagree about something. You want to keep that door open because what if they're asking those questions because the Lord's going to use that in their life and they're going to go away and they're actually going to cha have a change of heart and then you burned that bridge because you were just kind of a jerk. You don't want to do that. You want to be in, tell the truth, but have some grace and win another conversation with that person. Um, usually when, when you ever notice this or am I the only one that has this problem of like when people, you're talking to somebody you disagree with, you're just waiting for them to stop talking so that you can continue your point, right? That's not listening, <laughs> right? It's just a, it's not really a conversation. It's really just a lecture with some interruptions. And uh, um, listening helps the person truly feel valued. Can you like tell when you're in an argument with your spouse or someone else, like when they're really trying to listen to you and when they're just being quiet, 
waiting for you to shut up, right? Yeah. Usually they're yeah. being quiet. They're interrupting. <laughs> they're interrupting, yes. So when we're listening to people, we really help them feel valued. You can say back what you hear them saying. You can ask some thoughtful questions of them. You can ask them, why is this important to you? Because there's usually a personal story behind that. Get to that. Start talking about their journey. Why is this a question that matters to you? Often people have fear that's behind it, some kind of fear that they're wrestling with, something. So get to that. Um, and so, you know, be a good conversationalist. And, and uh, so we're going to play some clips now. I kind of put a highlight reel together. Here's the addresses if you want to see the whole thing. But we're going to play a short clip reel here of kind of some man-on-the-street interviews with Scott Klusendorf, the guy that you saw earlier, interviewing college students on their views of life issues. And you can hear what they have to say and kind of how they think. And so this is how your grandkids think. This is how your 20-something and teenager kids think. This is how they've been influenced and impacted by the culture. So if you're going to be talking to them in your conversations, you need to understand a little bit about how they think. And I might have you stop it a couple times as we go through okay. it so don't disappear. If it were shown that the two-year-old and the fetus were equally human, do you think the law should equally protect both? I, I, I think it's different if you compare an un unborn human versus like a born human. Because if a human is born, then they've already achieved their life on this planet. And then they, they, were, they were born to um, live life on this earth as, as a human being. But I mean, I, I think up until the point they're born, they, the, the person should have a right to abort them, abort their child or not. Let me ask you this, I'm curious your thoughts, and mm -hmm. it's not a trap question, I'm just wondering okay. how you would answer. Doctors in San Francisco are doing surgery on fetuses in utero. Mm -hmm. They're repairing herniated diaphragms, and what they do is they remove the fetus from the womb, partially, repair the herniated diaphragm, then put the fetus back in the womb where it's born normally, 12 weeks later. Do you think at that point the fetus goes from being non-human with no rights to briefly being human and having rights and then back to being non-human with no rights again? No, I think it's just, I don't think, I don't think it's the non-human, human, non-human. I think it's just the entire process is just as a fetus. And yeah. It's so, last question, uh, you think it's the location that's decisive? I mean, like, you can't abort a child if it's born. Right. So, yeah, as long as it's in there, I think you have the right to. Because, I mean, it's your baby, and it's you, you made it, and so you should have whatever. Like, even though it's a human human being, like, it, well, it's, I mean, it's going to be a human being, but you still have every right to do what you want with it. Okay, stop there <laughs> for a second. Okay, so do you see what's happening here? It's, it, it, he's... You, Scott Klusendorf is using questions to try to help this young man pin down his view. He's not in an argument with him, but he's, he's very skilled in asking him, to helping him to get clarity about his view. And then what does he reveal in the process? That he's shocked himself. He hasn't really thought through his view maybe quite as well as he thought he has. But he could tomorrow, the next day, something could 
could, could click. And this is the power of questions that I'm always trying to encourage you guys to step into. Yeah, but isn't it, isn't it interesting that for him what makes it have life is that it's born, the, the location. It's the location that gives the fetus value. But and even though the surgery for the unborn, and then he asked him, well, is he a human? Does he go from non-human to human to back to non-human when they're putting it back in the womb? Like, what's happening here? Wasn't really sure about that because he's challenging the location issue. Is location what gives, him, gives the baby its humanity? And then isn't it interesting that for the young man, what is it that gives the baby its value? It's the mother... It's the mother's desire for the baby. As long as she wants it, it's a baby. If she doesn't want it, she has the right, he said, all the way to the end, she has the right to abort it, as long as the location is still inside the womb. Yeah, you can't, but, but do, you, do you see that even that is completely what we call in logic arbitrary? He still hasn't answered the question is, what is the unborn? At no time has he answered that question. He has this arbitrary assertion that once the baby is born, well, then you can't kill it. But why? He hasn't explained to me why it's wrong to, explain, to, to kill the baby once it's traveled eight inches down the birth canal. And that's the thing is that where does he get this idea? that it belongs to the mother. That is such a cultural value. And these are the very people who often say, hey, we shouldn't have any, you know, people need to keep their morality out of politics. But isn't that a moral judgment that that baby belongs to the, to the mother? That's a moral judgment all day long. That's, that's an assertion that must be proven. That's an assumption he's making because he's just bought into the cultural narrative. But this is where our young people are, is this is all is the, the, the programming that they've had drilled into them in the wider culture. So we have to kind of be a voice for, well, you know, I'm curious, you made this assertion, like, where do you get that idea? How did you come to that conclusion? Can you tell me how you came to that conclusion? That's a very big statement. I mean, I'm curious how you came to that understanding. So, all right, go ahead. Simply because you created it. Right. So your creating the child gives you the right to end its life. Well, not like murder, but I mean, if you wanted to, yes. You do have the, I think you do, you should have the right to end a child's life if, 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 if it needs to be. Is the government unjustly interfering when it tells the citizenry you can't kill two-year-olds? Well, I mean, killing a two-year-old is murder, and, and murdering is already illegal, right? So what does he say? If it's, if it's out of the womb, then what is it? Murder. It's murder. But if its location is different, then what is it? It's not murder. And if it's legal, it's not murder. It's, it's not murder, yeah. So this is, this is how the thinking goes. And it, so what Scott's trying to do is it's a very common tactic that he uses. He calls it the trot out the toddler scenario. Is you ask the person um, the whatever reason they're giving, like location. And you say, well, if I had a toddler here, 
and he was in this room, and then I moved him to that room, would that be a good reason to kill him? And they would say, well, no, you, you can't do that. Well, okay, so location, changing a toddler's location isn't a good reason to kill them. So then why is changing the location of the unborn a good reason to kill them? And so this is a common tactic that Scott uses to, he, he takes whatever reason they're giving, and then he applies it to a toddler, and he says, is this a good reason to kill a toddler? And then he brings it back to the unborn. He says, well, would, so then why is it this a good reason to kill the unborn if the unborn is a human? So, all right, now we're going to talk to two girls who are pro-life, but they just don't think the government should be involved in that conversation. So we're going to listen to Scott's conversation with them. If I understand you right, you personally oppose abortion because you believe it violently kills a human being, yes. an innocent human being. But you think it should be legal to do that. It's a fine line. I think that the choice shouldn't be made by the government. Like, I think that it should be a personal choice, just like religion is. Because it, I think a lot of like abortion and life and death follows a lot of religious views and a lot of like personal choices, I don't think that the government should be able to just make that decision for me. If there was a cult group, for example, that decided two-year-olds did not have a right to life, and it was their personal decision that two-year-olds could be killed or used as parental property, does the state have a right to tell them you can't do that? Well, I would hope that. Um, obviously, that would never happen, but that the laws that are already in place would kind of put that down. But um, I think that when it comes to decisions like that, when they decide like, oh, I don't think two-year-olds have the right to live, I don't think that that's like a religious view, a, like it might be a social view, like put, put upon you from your community or how you were raised. Um, but I don't think that choosing like that, making a choice for someone else, like, I don't know, it's a, it's a hard line, I guess, to talk about because I don't think that they should be in our personal decisions, but to me, killing a bunch of two-year-olds because you don't think that they live is a personal decision or like something that someone would make. Let's try to understand what they're saying here. So they're making the argument that killing the unborn is a personal decision and the, the government doesn't belong in personal decisions. Okay, that was the assertion that they're making. But then he does the trot out the toddler and he says, well, is it a personal decision to kill a two-year-old? Well, no, that would be what? That would be murder. That would be wrong. And he says, well, what if you had a religious cult and they thought it was okay to kill two-year-olds? Should the government intervene then? Well, yeah, that would be wrong. So then going back to the unborn, why is it, why, what makes it a personal decision because of the unborn's location that the government shouldn't interfere with that. Because see, if the person is a human, his argument is, then they're still gonna be a human no matter where they're located. But we have this, this thought that the unborn is this category of decisions called personal decisions. But once the, born, the unborn comes out, then it's not a personal decision anymore. It's a different category of murder. Are you with me? So this is, it's, 
this idea, this phraseology of, well, the, killing the unborn is a personal decision. Well, what makes it a personal decision? Because I, what I want you to get is just, and then I'll get you yelling, the, that the category of personal decisions, they want to put the unborn in this special category of this is a personal decision. There are a lot but, of reasons you, you can't make a personal decision that the government controls your behavior or controls what you decide. For instance, I can't decide I want to yell fire in a theater. Well, we can't decide to um, Not pay our taxes. We can't decide to kill someone in a moment of haste because we're angry at them. Are those moral choices? Is it a moral choice to kill someone or not kill someone? Is it a moral choice to rob someone, to burglarize someone's home? Are those all moral choices as well as legal choices? Yeah. yeah. See, our government enforces personal decisions all the time. They hold us accountable for our personal decisions all the time. But for some reason, we have this assertion in our culture that there's a special category of personal decisions that is something the government can't speak into. Something about the location of the unborn. And, and that brings us back to our main question, right? Is what is the unborn? Because if the unborn is a human, then that's a different issue. It's not her body. We talked last week about how babies have separate DNA. We talked last week about how babies can have surgery in, in utero, and Scott mentioned that again, that we take pain, we give pain medication to fetuses when they have to have surgery. We, and they have their own heartbeat, they have their own nervous system, they have their own brain. They are, they are a, their own person. I, I found this particular clip, clip about the personal decisions very challenging for me this week because I could see even like subtle ways that my own thinking had been influenced by this idea of personal decisions. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm only making this special category for this one thing that there's personal yeah. decisions. The government regulates my, my behavior all the time. It doesn't let me run traffic lights whenever I want to. Well, I just have a personal decision. I'm in a hurry. I need to get somewhere. I'm in the yeah. This I don't need to buy into the you know. This is my personal decision. I'm in the diamond lane. I don't want two people. I'm an introvert. I I, I like to drive alone, and I'm in a hurry. These are all my personal decisions. So the officer is going to say, "Well, that's interesting. Here's your ticket, right?" We have this this idea in our culture that the fate of the unborn is a personal decision that the government shouldn't weigh in on. Or a right, yeah. Yes, Mr. Bontrager. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, I'm reminded of when you did uh, your talk on evangelism um, reaching your oikos, you had this illustration of like your web of beliefs. Yeah. Another way to think about this is like, you know, the sled thing, and it's like all these are all different points on the outside of the web of beliefs. But what is the core belief in the middle that's driving? That's excellent. And the core, the core question would be, what is the unborn? Yeah. That the unborn is the unborn a human being? Because how you answer that question is going to affect all of these other systems in your web of beliefs, right? It's it's going to influence a lot of other choices that you're going to make. Yeah, Mrs. Long, have other, maybe we could say 
when you've made choices that now have other people involved, exactly. now you have to make choices that honor all of the people involved. And we, yeah, and so even if we've made choices that are not terrific, it's like if I had a thing of paint and I, with the, the, the can of paint represents some actions and some choices that I've made, and then I spill paint on everyone around me. Now we've got to clean up this mess. And I've got to do it in a way that honors everybody that's involved, everyone who's been affected by this, by this choice that I've made. And it's, uh, my purpose here is not to get in a, a posture of blame, but to, to make the point that because I do believe the unborn is a human person, we need to make choices that honors the unborn, not just honors me as the mother. Yeah, I think the fathers are the big, like, overlooked party in this whole conversation because abortion affects fathers, too. And Lamise, I think, touched on that very beautifully in the video that we watched that she did, uh, that there are resources available for, for men who have had to live through this. And, and often the men are the ones who get deeply impacted because that's their baby too and, and the mother gets rid of it against their will and they don't have a say. And that damages them. Um, there was a, a guy I prayed for recently that he had been in that exact situation and it had been a, like a wound in his soul that his girlfriend had aborted their baby. And, you know, and so that was a little conversation we could have with Jesus and ask Jesus to minister healing to, his, to him because that was, that was hard for him. And it was still with him after 20 years. And, and so guys are definitely affected. And when I talk about cleaning up our messes, the, you know, the, it affects the, the guy. It affects the grandparents. It affects every – there's a lot of people that, that – this decision affects. Anyway, so these are some things for you to think about. We won't go into a lot of detail next week. I'm going to wrap this all up with some conversation about the, 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 the medical technologies, and then I want to talk about the issue of the mentally d diminished um, and whether they have a right to life. Okay, let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Good questions, good interaction today. I hope, are you guys finding this helpful? Like, or is you just, like, I'm so over this. All right. Good. All right. Father, um, I thank you for life. We are just, I think we take it for granted because we're here. And, you know, like our President Reagan said, you know, I, I'm struck by the, the people that uh, are against life are already born. And here, here we are. And we just take it for granted because we're here. But we're so grateful for the breath that's in our lungs and for the life that our parents gave us so that we could reach our kingdom potential for you. Lord, help us not to squander our days, but to truly look to you in how we can reach our oikos with the gospel, that we truly are ambassadors for you, that every day that, that we wake up is a day that we have filled with supernatural possibilities and that the life that you have given to us is not something to be taken advantage of or to be squandered, but it is something to be embraced as we fulfill the Great Commission. 
In Jesus' mighty name, amen.